I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, The Hedgehog and the Fox investigate the origins of human musicality by looking for musical ability and perception in other animals, including rhesus macaques, zebra finches, a cockatoo named Snowball, and Ronan, a head-banging California sea lion. Our guide to this evolving animal orchestra, as the title of his new book puts it, is Henk Jon Honing, Professor of Music Cognition at the University of Amsterdam. Henk Jon takes as his starting point a conjecture of Charles Darwin's, from The Descent of Man, published in 1871. The perception, if not the enjoyment, of musical cadences and of rhythm, Darwin wrote, is probably common to all animals, and no doubt depends on the common physiological nature of their nervous systems. Henk Jan's book is not about the origins of music, but the structure of musicality, that collection of attributes that enable us to make and appreciate music such as perception of a regular beat, or the ability to imitate a melody. If such traits are based on our cognitive abilities and biological predispositions, it makes sense to look for them in other animals. All sorts of fascinating hypotheses then open up. If musicality is a sensitivity that humans share with many non-human species, a sensitivity that in us precedes the development of music and of language, but enabled both. Music, then, would not be a mere by-product, something delicious but ultimately useless, auditory cheesecake, as evolutionary psychologist Stephen Pinker suggested, but foundational. We'll come back to that cheesecake. But I began by asking Henk Jan about his own evolution. He's been interested in musicality in animals for about a decade. But back in the 1980s, when he started his academic career, his focus was on computers – specifically applying AI techniques to the formalisation of musical knowledge. This included a spell at the Centre for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics at Stanford. I asked him about making the transition from computers to animals. Well, the animals only recently came in, in the, sen- in the sense that the biology, the, 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 the biological interest, and I think... The moment I started to realize that I needed biology to answer my research questions was in yeah, around 2009. So let's say 10 years ago. That was the moment I thought, okay, I have to, to enlarge my toolkit 
and start talking to uh, uh, behavioral biologists and neurobiologists. That was that was in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, let's say. But when I studied, that was in nineteen eighty four, I think I was at Stanford, and then I was mm. I was fascinated by. In those days, the first machines that could make sound were, yeah, I think they were in Stanford and in Paris. <laughs> and this was a very, at that time a very cool place to go to go to if you wanted to understand something about how you could produce sound on the machine and even how to make a listening machine, which was also one of my my fascinations in those days. And that was actually before I entered the field of music cognition, or actually the reason why I entered the field of music cognition, because I was I was interested in, in, in explaining to a machine how music works, how what is tempo, right. what is a rhythm, when is a note early, when is a note late, and I failed miserably <laughs> in that. And uh, but because I failed, I realized that as a musician, I, I didn't know much really the right thing about music, and and I I, I thought well we need to know more about about listening, about how we perceive music in order to to be able to make a listening machine, but also to understand something about, about our own perception. And for 20 years, I worked with those methods. So the methods from computer science uh, and from psychology, experimental psychology. Uh, and only recently, actually since the, the studies that we did with newborn babies, I realized biology is, the, is, is, is where I should look for, for the rest of the answer. So even though your methodology switched, there's clearly a common thread running through your career in that curiosity about what is music, what is musicality, how do we perceive it, how do we perform it, all, all those sort of things seem to me to be bound up from, from the start. And the main question is like, why do we have music and, and why, does it, why do I personally, why do I care so much? Why does it move me? Why, why is it so... Has it, does it have such an intimate relationship with how I feel or think or and how does listening work? Why, why is a rhythm exciting and why is another rhythm dull? All these those things we all take for granted if we're listening for, to music. I, I wanted to figure that one out and I did it with different tools. First, I thought that the computer was the right. I still think that's, that's an important contribution, though, that the computer is one tool to try to understand what we know and what we don't know. If, uh, if you can't explain it to a computer, you don't really understand it, actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you can't formalize it or right. mechanize the idea, at least some, some problems allow, allow for that uh, formalization. And then, of course, the psychology, because, yeah, we have a, a particular psychology that's different from a machine or another animal. And then lately, the biology, like 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 is music or music uh, or the capacity for music is this really a, hu a human characteristic that is maybe largely cultural or is there also a biological basis and am i right in getting the impression that until recently music has rather or the study of music has rather been the sort of the poor cousin it's rather been left on the margins when you compare it to other aspects of cognition in particular studying the evolution and the function of language yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think it is has several courses. I think I think music is is studied in academia mostly, within in in music departments or musicology departments, which tend to at least in the last, uh, let's say, fifty years or so, to to have a focus on the histories or about repertoires or uh, composers. Um, so really, the cultural aspects of music. 
and systematic musicology, which was normally the field of all the other aspects of music, have, has been have been less less popular. And if if you look at the larger scale on, on like a, a amount of research effort, uh, I think uh, language, thanks to the cognitive revolution and Chomsky, has attracted an enormous amount of research effort. So and there's this all these subfields from psycholinguistics to neurolinguistics, prosody. Uh, all these aspects of music that of, of language that that have been studied or are still studied and music is 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 is, is lacking behind uh, seriously <laughs> and that's also one of the messages the main message i think of the book that we should be proud of the fact that we all have the capacity for music we all have the capacity for language we can all speak naturally and understand language but we also all have the capacity for music. We can all listen to music and enjoy it or dislike it, <laughs> for that matter. And, and that's, that's a, a capacity that we tend to uh, underestimate. Um, in the Netherlands, for instance, if I explain about my work, and the first thing people most, most of the time say like, oh, I'm not musical, or uh, my brother is extremely uh, unrhythmical, or you get this very negative <laughs> judgments that people make about themselves or people in their environment. Well, yeah, we all enjoy music. And, and that realization is sort of motivating my work to, to uh, my previous book. And this book is really showing that we all have this shared capacity for music. And I'm interested in figuring out what that is. What, what are the components of this uh, talent that we all have? Uh, and, in, 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 and is there a biological basis? Do we share these components with other with other animals. Now, there is the infamous comparison that Steven Pinker made between music and cheesecake in the sense that it evolved as a byproduct, an unnecessary, a pleasant but unnecessary sort of function that came along as a sort of super product of language. And that, that presumably has been quite a, a pervasive notion. It's, it's, it's quite widely cited, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is one of the most cited statements I can safely say in, in musicology of Pinker's <laughs> mm. work. In a way, in also a bit, I have to be fair to Stephen Pinker, I used as a straw man because he just says, well, yeah. music is... There's this strange reasoning. Eh? If, if something is not important for evolution, therefore it might not be important at all. And that's not the claim that he makes. He just says that there is no clear reasons or arguments to, to say that music is an adaptation. It's really a result of natural selection. And he, he, he might be right in that. And his cheesecake metaphor is actually, in a way, shows that yeah, for some reason, music can interact with lots of different brain functions. We can even get excited. We can generate dopamine in our brains because we're listening to music. So in that sense, it's also... It's very special about music that it has such an int intimate relationship with our brains. And his, his latest interpretation of that is that music might actually be a supernormal stimulus. It's just it's something that is not a natural adaptation, but something that came along with some other evolutionary history and actually pushes the button on of, of all kinds of uh, uh, skills and mechanisms that we have a slightly harder and, and stimulates us. And it's one particular theory that's still, uh, that you can test and that's viable. I think he's not right. <laughs> I think it might actually be, uh, so he's still, uh, yeah, the, that core idea of the, of, of, of the, of the thesis is that, that music or the sensitivity to music is a byproduct of language. Yeah. But it could actually be the other way around. 
And that's an interesting thesis that we've been investigating with some colleagues, and I describe it also in the book. Yeah. It's the idea that actually musicality might precede both language and music. And if, if, there's a, if there's a sort of thesis or a hypothesis that you want to test in the book, it's not so much Pinker's as really going all the way back to Charles Darwin in The Descent of Man, where he hypothesizes that the perception and possibly the enjoyment of music is something that humans share with all animals. So it's not a, a special reserved function of the human. It's something that uh, derives from our biological shared natures. Yeah, yeah, it's actually the motto of the book. I think it's a wonderful phrase. And especially this addition, eh? he says it's the perception. Uh, what is it in English? I think it's... If, yeah, if, the, if not the enjoyment. If not the enjoyment. Yes. And I think this little addition is, is, is very uh, is, is important because that's still a key question. Like, uh, and his argument is we share the same nervous system, so therefore we should share a sensitivity to melody and rhythm with, with most animals. And that's a very bold thesis, a very attractive thesis. But until like 10 years ago, there was no evidence in that direction. Um, there was no animal found that could sort of clearly pick up the regularity in music, for instance, until Snowball came. Right, <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to come back to Snowball. Yeah. But tell, tell me, um, obviously musicality is not, is not one thing. It's a collection of attributes. But... You spend quite a lot of time in the book talking about beat perception. So can you just say what beat perception is and why, it, why it's been the focus of um, such particular attention? Yeah, you're quite right in saying that musicality is, is, a, is a compound. It's not a monolithic thing. It's not one thing, like in language, that recursion might be the core aspect of, lang of human language. But with musicality, it's, it's obviously multiple things, some of which are uniquely human and some of which we share with other uh, animals. At least that's the hypothesis. And, and two components I describe of the book, and one of them is, is beat perception, and I give it more time because it's the one that most of my colleagues agree upon, that that's a central aspect of musicality. If you can't pick up the regularity of the music, if you can't hear what the tempo of the other person playing is, you can't play together, you can't play music together, you can't yeah. dance together. So it's a... So in other words, it's not really music. If that... If that perception of the of beat is not there then then you're not really experiencing music at all you don't experience it but you also cannot make it so it's it's really fundamental in that sense so so without beat perception no music it's it's just and you see that virtually in any culture you have these regularities so uh, especially if people make music together the beat is an important aspect there are lots of music that that, that differ from the beat of course but that is actually sort of prove the same thing that you have to, you have to go through a lot of trouble <laughs> to make something not regular uh, in, in music and, and that makes beat perception yeah on the one hand a very yeah to musicologists it's extremely trivial i mean nobody find that an interesting thing regularity but because it is so trivial for humans it makes it extremely interesting to look at because it's very hard to model computationally it's very difficult to make a machine that picks up the regularity from the music and picks up tempo deviations in a way we can, humans can do very easily. And it is a, a phenomenon that is apparently is very difficult to find uh, in the animal world. And that makes it therefore a very interesting test case to see like if this is a central component, what is this evolutionary history? Is there a biological basis or is it just a learned phenomenon? 
Because the, there is a there is a theory that beat perception derives from the heartbeat, and since all living creatures have a heartbeat, then you might expect to find it. And you'd tested it in human babies, basically by surprising them, by changing, by omitting a beat, and seeing if their brains registered surprise. And then you went and you looked for that same phenomenon in macaques, rhesus macaques. Now tell me why you looked there. Why, why were they the species yeah. that you, you chose to, to look for that, that beat perception? Yeah, there, were, there were several reasons. Uh, one, one of them being like um, the idea like if beat perception is, has a biological basis and it has at least, of course, it also has cultural uh, uh, influences, but let's say that babies are, are born with this talent to pick up this regularity, or at least it is active very early on. That's what we showed in our research from 2009. Then to me, it seems to be very simple to sort of to look to look at our nearest uh, cousins uh, and 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 to in this case macaques because that's a, a well-known animal model. There are labs that, that are that are experts in in audio perception in macaques to use the same technique. Just a few electrodes on the head of the baby, and in this case, a few electrodes on the head of a rhesus macaque, and then see if if they have beat perception. Their brains are almost identical. The structure of the of the of the macaque brain is, is is so similar to the human brain that we use it as an animal model for our human brains. We know a lot, thanks to these rhesus macaques, about Parkinson's disease and epilepsy and deafness and and how to a lot of biomedical research, let's say. But it turned out that they do not have beat perception. So they are the same experiment we did with newborn babies. They are surprised if you meet a note on the first, on the downbeat of a, of a rhythm. Uh, you see that their brains are sort of uh, surprised that nothing is happening. So they have a very strong expectation something will happen on the downbeat. It does not happen and the brain gives this mismatch negativity, a negative signal. Hey, surprise, something strange happens. And not in other positions where there is not a high expectation of something happening. And you see with the rhesus macaques that they have this, this same surprise signal, but they, they show it for every omission, whether it is on the downbeat or somewhere else, it doesn't matter. So that was a very peculiar result because it shows that, yeah, although the brain structures are similar, apparently humans have beat perception and rhesus macaques do not have it. And the, the current interpretation is that it is not so much the structure of the brain, but the connection between areas, so certain areas in the brain that are more developed in humans and less developed in macaques. So that was the first, yeah, my first uh, research in, uh, let's say, an animal uh, neurobiology of, of, uh, of animals. That, that gave us this result, that it is, yeah, this result suggested that it is uniquely human. That turns out to be not the case, but that was uh, the first interpretation. Mm -hmm. To link it to the second half of your question, which was like, like uh, the hypothesis, the very common hypothesis that beat perception has something to do with, uh, with heart rate or with, with yeah. hearing the beat of the, of, your, of the heart of your mother in the womb, for instance. Uh, that was actually falsified by this experiment because rhesus macaques also have hearing. It is also developing very early on in the last few months in pregnancy. So just like newborn babies, human babies, they also hear the heart of the mother very early on. So this, this actually not finding beat perception in rhesus macaques is actually counter evidence for this idea that it has to do with heart rate. 
Now, you mentioned one of the attractions of working with the rhesus macaques being that in evolutionary terms, they're, they're comparatively close to us. So why then look at a species like the zebra finch, which is also fascinating in the book, but of course, much, much more remote from us in evolutionary terms. So why look at them when we're trying to see if there are common origins of, of what becomes in us human musicality? Yeah, it is a it is a now getting a, a common strategy in in cognitive biology to um, if you want to say something about the evolution, eh, because that's that's the trick here that we're doing. You you look at in the here and now, you're comparing two species, and then you can sort of reason back about the history of these two species. Because if those two species that are related share a certain cognitive skill, their common ancestor in the in the distant past might also have had this particular cognitive skill. So you can, in the here and now, say something about the evolutionary history, which is an intriguing uh, technique because you, yeah, music doesn't fossilize, our musical brain doesn't fossilize, so it's difficult or impossible to say something about the musical past. But with this particular technique, you can say something about it. But then very informative are actually animals that are unrelated in the sense that they are genetically not very close to us because they, if they develop a similar skill with a completely different uh, uh, genetic makeup, it gives you more clues about when did this skill arise, what could have been the environmental influences and why did this particular animal develop the same skill, probably with a very different design, but with the same sort of, but they found the same solution. So that makes birds, which are really distant in the sense that I think uh, we share a common ancestor like, what is it, 350 million years ago, so we're quite apart. They're also their brain structure has a very different organization, but it turned out that they do have beat perception, at least a particular subgroup of uh, avian uh, species uh, have beat perception. So they found a similar solution to apparently a similar problem with a very different uh, brain architecture. And that makes looking at, at birds, for instance, also in, in, in general, in, in comparative biology, very interesting. It, beco it becomes an animal model that is, zebra finches especially, uh, an animal model to look at auditory perception. And also because uh, these animals uh, breed very quickly, so you can see something about yeah, on a small scale how evolution changes. So it's a very, very popular in that sense, uh, animal model to study the evolution of auditory perception. And in this case, musicality. And you mentioned Snowball, who's not a finch, but a, but a cockatoo. And um, I think it was 2005, around, around about then, when a video of, of Snowball became widely viewed. Can you say why that, was, why that caused such excitement? <laughs> you talk about, I think you talk about people having tears in their eyes when they were watching a, yeah. a screening of this video at a conference. So it was obviously quite an emotional and a moment. Yeah, yeah well, I think, yeah, I think I saw it in... I don't know precisely. I think it was 2007 or something, a, 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 a public conference in, in Barcelona where uh, Tukumse Fitch, a colleague of mine, a, a cognitive biologist, showed uh, this video of uh, Snowball, that's a, a silver-crested uh, silver uh, uh, cackatoo, dancing on the Backstreet Boys. And he dances on the beat of the music and in the end he sort of bows and takes the applause of the audience uh, very graciously. <laughs> Uh, this was in Barcelona and people started uh, yelling and screaming and even some people very, were really moved because this animal was so, had so much pleasure in doing this. 
and we got very excited because that could have been the first, yeah, the first example of an animal that has beat perception that was not shown beforehand. I mean, dogs can't do that. The uh, horses can't move to the by themselves uh, regular to the music. So it is a, it was an, yeah, a, a potential first evidence in favor of Darwin's hypothesis. So that makes it made it very exciting. And uh, what another colleague of mine actually went to the person owning Snowball and recorded there for days and days. And they published the paper in 2009 and it became the cover article with Snowball in all kinds of dance positions, <laughs> showing that that uh, Snowball can actually uh, is sensitive to the to the speed, to the beat of the music. Yeah, that made him a, a sort of an ambassador of the field since then. It was uh, being the first animal that was uh, at least uh, ha had one component of musicality uh, uh, under control. And although Snowball is obviously a star, I have to say that my favourite animal in the book was Ronan the sea lion. And it sounds like you had quite a you had quite a close relationship um, <laughs> with, with her when you went to when you went to California to to meet her. And she is fascinating because we probably don't have to we probably don't have time to go into all the details about vocal learning. But one conjecture suggests that you have to be able to repeat and imitate a, a musical pattern in order to beat perception. But sea lions don't appear to have that. And yet, Ronan exhibited what looks clearly to be beat perception. Yeah, it was it was again a, sh a shock that uh, in this case, I, I've, uh, I heard about Ronan from a from a scientific journalist who sent me a preprint of a paper that was about to be published for comments. And it was very convincing. And I, I, I went over there because I wanted to see it myself because it was so surprising. And against the reigning theory that you just described very well, because this would be a falsification of that theory that was standing as the main theory for almost 10 years. But she's great. I mean, I went there. She's a very enthusiastic animal. She loved to do the experiment. I was there a year after the paper was published, so she didn't do the experiment for a year. And she re they redid the experiment while I was there. And this animal loved it. And they played, Earth, in this case, Earth, Wind and Fire. What is it called? Bookie Wonderland. At a fast tempo. And she had the downbeat headbanging. She was on top of it, faster than I was. <laughs> and then a slower version. And she, she immediately had the right, uh, let's say, uh, face uh, in which she, she moved her head with the, with the downbeat. And, and apparently, in what I could judge, uh, enjoying it extremely uh, well. I was really surprised that she could do it, but also that she had so much, it seemed to be intrinsically motivating which is still a, something we are looking for in, in this type of research. It's the, it's the enjoyment eh, that, that Charles Darwin mentions in his uh, wonderful uh, few sentences that he writes about it in The Descent of Men, about, about musicality. It's, it's this sort of the pl getting pleasure out of hearing melody and rhythm. And, uh, and that's still uh, yeah, in, in the heart of the current research, in trying to figure out why certain animals get pleasure out of melody and rhythm, and other animals uh, less so. One of the big ideas that I took away from your book is animals are listening very closely, very carefully, 
but they're listening in a different way. They're listening for different things. So you you point out that songbirds are very sensitive to differences in timbre. So if you change the the instrumentation of a melody, or if you shift the pitch, if you preserve the relationship between the notes, but you shift the pitch up or down, then that is perceived as a completely different phenomenon. Whereas for a human, we listen in a, I don't know, a more, you say, I think a more analytical, a more structural, more holistic sort of way. So animals are, are listening carefully, but they're just listening differently. Yeah. We're, I'm still working on that. Like, like how, how, what precisely are birds listening to or listening for? And, and there is indeed this, this big difference between human listening, and I would say, and, 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 and the way birds listen. If you present a piece of music to, to humans, we listen for melodies and rhythms. We find that very common. If you present music to birds, they seem to focus more on the, on the spectral changes that are happening. So in a way, birds are listening to music in the way we're listening to speech. If we listen to speech, we listen for the, the spectral changes because those are the inf- it's the information where we can hear what is a word and what the meaning is. If we're listening to speech, we're not, not, not really focusing on the pitch or the rhythm. That's, that's, those are secondary, those, those are additional information. Uh, but if we're listening to music, we're, we're forgetting actually about the spectral information. A melody on a guitar sounds identical to a melody on a piano to us. We, we, what we recognize is the melody. I thought that it was an eye-opener <laughs> yes. when we did these experiments, that I, when we were trying to have zebra finches listen for the regularities that are obvious to us, they don't pay attention to it at all, at least not if they are free in choosing what they want to listen to. They're, they're focused on other things and they, focus, they appear to focus more on the spectral details and the changes thereof. You're clearly in the early stages of, of what is a very new and a very exciting field that's that's turning up all sorts of surprising discoveries. So as you sort of scan the, the horizon, as you sort of look to the future, what particularly exciting things do you hope the next few years will bring? Well, in the short run, I think, or I hope, that's maybe a better one, is that we, I hope we get an answer on the question, what we humans share with cockatoos and with sea lions that we do not share with other monkeys. I mean, what, what is the reason why they have bee perception and we don't? And there are quite a few people now working on this topic and especially in the, in, uh, with seals. So I'm, I, I suspect that in the coming years, we, we, we will get an answer on, uh, on that one. On the long run, I think uh, the, the biggest and interesting challenge is to more substantialize this idea of the biological basis of music by not only looking at um, behavioral and neurobiology, but also to look at the genetics of it. Like, right. if it has a biological basis, there should, you should also be able to trace it back in the, in the genome. And that's actually a research agenda we're currently uh, uh, working on, is to see, like, is it possible to find a genetic underpinning of these key components? Does beat perception have a genetic component does relative pitch have a genetic component we know that absolute pitch for instance also has a, oh. a genetic component if we're able to do so that's that's quite a, a research program because that you need enormous amounts of respondents and enormous amount of data to do to do this kind of uh, analysis but if we're capable of, of of getting such a consortium and and doing this then you suddenly have a tool 
where you can look for beat perception in all the databases that we have of all, of all the different animals. And then you can do lots of reasoning of the, of the biological past in a very efficient way. So you, uh, it opens up enormous amount of uh, resources with which we can answer questions like where does music come from and, and where did it arise and which species might have this talent and why do other species not not have this particular talent so and also in the human species with uh, uh, the whole fossil record that we have so that is a yeah the excitement or the promise is, is that it is a, a tool that that op will open up an enormous amount of information or no or or, or uh, you call it early knowledge about the origins of uh, music I'm I'm optimistic that that might be a, a thing that we get some improvements in in the next well let's say ten years. <laughs> and do you think a conclusive proof that music is antecedent to language and not, and not just cheesecake to to go back to what we discussed at the beginning? Ah yeah yeah that that's that's yeah I forget that all the time but that's actually in a way a more intriguing <laughs> a more intriguing question yeah. I, um, yeah, we're working hard in getting how, how to test this, huh? because there's some evidence, you can find evidence in favor of this hypothesis, especially in a de developmental sense. Eh? You, can, you can show there's growing, growing evidence that newborns are sensitive to melody and rhythm long before they're sensitive to language. Actually, they use this sensitivity for, uh, for intonation and, and rhythm to learn a certain language. So you could say on a developmental scale, musicality is indeed preceding music and language because musicality is used to learn a language. Linguists tend to interpret the data in a different way, but I think there are, there are more and more arguments and also empirical data that shows that in that sense, musicality precedes language. But on an evolutionary scale, that's slightly more difficult. Then you have to look at brain structures, uh, and, and how they evolved and if you can sort of reason back like that some areas are have a, a more shared or a more uh, a connect a more stronger link with musicality than with language for that there are now some strategies isabella Peretz in montreal is also working on this idea and i hope we get more researchers interested and at least to show that it's an alternative hypothesis I think more and more people agree that Pinker is only one way of looking at it. It might be completely the other way around. And that's a nice tease. <laughs> I was talking to Henk Jon Honning about the Evolving Animal Orchestra. The book is out now, translated by Sherry MacDonald and published by the MIT Press. You can find out more about it on the MIT Press website. And there's lots of information about Henk Jon's work on his pages on the University of Amsterdam website. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Music Cognition. I particularly liked Henk Jan's refreshing decision to write his book as a series of diary entries, presenting his findings, but also his travels, his encounters with humans as well as animals, and sometimes the dead ends and frustrations of research. The book is full of fascinating nuggets of information, such as most animals have perfect pitch, and variations in hormone levels can alter the sensitivity of human hearing. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and even leave a review. I'll be back again next week with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>